This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Recovery Radio. My name is Steve Martirano. I am your host and guide on this program where we talk about the disease of addiction and the, uh, the many roads to recovery. Recovery Radio is sponsored, of course, by Retreat, Premier Addiction Treatment Centers, about which more a bit later. You know, if you've heard the program at all in the past, in addition to first-person accounts and uh, authors and people who've written about the, the subject of uh, substance abuse or the opioid ad- uh, addiction problem, we very often reach out to the experts in the field uh, provided to us by Retreat. We're going to do that again today on a very important topic that the program has dealt with in the past, and that's something called co-occurring disorders. We're going to take a deeper dive on this very important topic and uh, what it means straight ahead with our guest, Dr. Aldo Morales. And um, he will tell us at the end of this hour, I have every confidence, what co-occurring disorders are, what what that means, uh, why it matters, and most importantly, how they are treated. So uh, we want to welcome Dr. Morales Uh, to the program. Uh, Dr. Morales, by the way, is medical director at Retreat in Palm Beach, where he practices addiction medicine. He's been doing that for, I think, over three decades now. He meets with patients. He uh, performs comprehensive psychiatric assessments and then develops a diagnosis based on the unique circumstances. And that's an important factor that one size does not fit all. Uh, We'll tell you all about what he does in the course of this uh, interview. Dr. Aldo Morales, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Steve. My so, pleasure. So, as I said, we, we have, we have uh, been talking about co-occurring disorders for a very long time on this program. Uh, Retreat has been at the f- really at the forefront of uh, identifying th- that this situation exists. And we've, so I said we've been talking about it, but we're really going to get into the weeds on it today with you. So thanks for your time. So let's begin at the beginning. When we talk about co-occurring disorders in the context of substance abuse, what are we talking about? Well, we have a term for that. We call it dual diagnosis, dual as in two. Uh, and that means the, the presence of a, an addictive disorder, an addiction disorder, as well as a psychiatric disorder, which could be a mood disorder, an anxiety disorder, a psychotic disorder, uh, PTSD. There's a whole list of uh, disorders that we treat in psychiatry. But what happens when we have a dual diagnosis uh, condition when they exist simultaneously, the prognosis for both is worsened. The prognosis for the addiction becomes worse. The prognosis for the mental health um, problem becomes worse. Um, so, for example, uh, we can anticipate there'll be higher rates of relapse. There'll be there'll be higher hospitalization rates. Um, incarceration, violence, all these things are increased in the presence of dual diagnosis or co-occurrence. Mm-hmm. Homelessness, for example, uh, medical complications like uh, hep C, hepatitis C, uh, all these things are magnified when there's a dual diagnosis. If a patient has only one of these at a time, they are much easier to manage. But when they both coexist, it creates more complications and more difficult to manage. A- am I correct in assuming that uh, at, at, the, at the beginning, of, or you tell me how long ago, when a substance abuse issue was manifest and anyone could see this person was abusing drugs or alcohol, all of the other behaviors that you have just described were more or less immediately just written off as a result of the substance abuse. 
Was was that the general feeling early on? That was probably the way it was then. But see, there's a uh, these disorders. Uh, uh, a co-occurring disorder could be either primary or secondary. Primary meaning that it existed before the addiction set in, or secondary meaning that it is caused by the addiction. And sometimes it's hard to tease that out. Why is that? But why is that? Job, yeah, I'm sorry. It's the job of, of, of the evaluator to uh, to make that distinction, and so that we have a better handle on how to proceed with treatment. So you got to find out whether you know whether you put whether, the, it's, whether it's primary, right. whether the co-occurring disorder is primary or secondary. Right. Whether you put the cart before the horse here, and, and you know, Steve, sometimes we don't know. Yeah. Why is it? Before, why Why is it important in terms of uh, in terms of uh, uh, treating this? Why, why is it necessary to, to know which came first here? Well, it's it's important for the patient to know, to learn that they might have a co-occurring disorder that has a life of its own, that they need to pay attention to to taking care of that as much as they need to pay attention to take care of their addiction disorder. Um, it's important for the clinician, so it helps us to guide our treatment uh, more specifically to, to that disorder. Uh, if, for example, if a patient is depressed because they've been, it's a, it's a direct result of the, uh, drinking, uh, usually one, if they if they become abstinent, then the depression gets better. Uh, but if a person is drinking to alleviate a depression, they end up making things worse. Mm. Uh, n- now, your, your field is psychi- psychiatry, addiction uh, psych- uh, psychiatric care. Addiction psychiatry. Yeah. How, how, how uh, long has that been a field of uh, practice? Not long, <laughs> not long, because uh, for the longest time, medicine turned a blind eye to addiction. Uh, and psychiatry did recognize it early on, but the treatment was fragmented. For example, a, a patient might see a psychiatrist, and that would be totally separate and divorced from any treatment for substance. Uh, the, the two were not addressed simultaneously. Uh, but now we have uh, a much more uh, much more combined approach. We also are beginning to teach addiction at the medical school level, um, which wasn't around when I was in medical school. Mm-hmm. wasn't even around when I was a resident back in the 80s. Uh, but now we are teaching medical students right right from the get-go in first year. In fact, I have a class coming up later next week first-year class, we introduce addictions to the first-year class, and that is that has never happened before. And when I say we introduce addiction, we also introduce the psychiatric component of addiction. In other words, the co-occurring, uh, the, the possibility of co-occurring psychiatric syndromes. Yeah, there's so much um, misinformation, stigma, and prejudice against this disease by the general public still to this day about, well, this is a failure of character or these people are doing it to, them, to themselves. I'm, I'm guessing that your field uh, should be clearing up a lot of that confusion for people about what's really going on when someone is engaged in incredible self-destructive behavior. Am I right? Totally, Steve. We're beginning to, to change public opinion now, but that's going to take a long time. Um, I've never met a patient who said, you know, I always wanted to grow up to be an addict. Nobody ever said that to me. People find themselves in that position and they say, how do I get out of this now? I I can't find a way out. On the first day, 
of my lectures to medical students, I teach them the following. I say, addiction is chronic, just like diabetes or hypertension. You are not going to cure it, but you can manage it. And a patient can manage their addiction disease as well. A patient can, can be an active member in that. Just like a, a patient who has diabetes has to be responsible and eat the right things, exercise, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so we're beginning to, to address, this, address this issue at the, at the ground uh, level with, with uh, physicians today. Years ago, uh, if you had an addiction problem, it was not medicine's problem. They would just turn a blind eye. Um, and uh, we are now embracing the, the treatment of addictions as, uh, as part of the job of, uh, of medicine. I know you uh, you mentioned these in the, at the beginning, but I, I really want to get um, a little closer to the ground on some examples of psychiatric problems that are that are that co-occur frequently. What are, what okay. are, we, are we are we talking about schizophrenia? Are we talk, what are we talking about? Well, schizophrenia is one of them. Schizophrenia is the second most um, most frequent diagnosis that is found in in a co-occurring kind of nature. The first one would be bipolar has a higher incidence of uh, comorbidity. Comorbidity means uh, coexistence with another. Uh, condition. Uh, there's bipolar disorder followed by schizophrenia. There's anxiety disorders. Um, there is um, panic disorder. There is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. There are, uh, there's depression. Excuse me. There's depression. Um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, very widely misunderstood. Maybe we can spend some minutes talking about that later. Uh, so all these are conditions that Psychiatrists routinely treat, but when they coexist with a substance problem, it, make, it makes the treatment more challenging, um, and, and it makes uh, recovery more challenging. And by recovery, I don't mean addiction recovery. I mean recovery from either one mm -hmm. becomes more challenging. Mm -hmm. we, there must have been occasions as, as your field grew more robust and, and uh, effective in treating this where patients or maybe patients' families uh, would hear you say, "Well, your you know, your 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 son or daughter is suffering from a, um, a psychiatric disorder as well, perhaps depression," and they would say, "Of course they're depressed. Look at their behavior. How did you explain your? How did you explain that to them? That that there was a, a you know a tighter or something else going on that linked those two things? I mean, nobody's surprised when it, when when an alcoholic is depressed, right?" <laughs> No, it's, in fact, you, you, you expect to see some depression in alcoholism. Uh, so people, people might just write it off as that depression is due to the alcoholism. Not always the case. Depression can, can, can precede the alcoholism or, or can precede a relapse, for example. So you want to look at family history. Is there a family history of depression? Mm -hmm. Is there a family history of anxiety disorders? These disorders tend to run in families just like addiction does. And we have to establish a chronology. You look at a life history and you see which came first. Or you see whether depressive episodes occurred during periods of sobriety. For example, a patient might say, well, you know, I was sober for five years. I never had one day of depression. Or somebody else might say, well, I was sober for five years. And during those five years, I had a couple of episodes where I was real depressed and I couldn't go to work, et cetera, et cetera. So you want to establish a, a, a timeline of events 
to determine whether the depression has a life of its own mm. or, whether it's, or the, whether it's merely a product of the disease of alcoholism. Our topic is co-occurring disorders. These are uh, psychiatric uh, problems, disorders that uh, are exist along with substance abuse. Explaining it all to us is the medical director at Retreat in Palm Beach, Dr. Aldo Morales. We will have more with Dr. Morales straight ahead. Don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We're pleased to have with us on the telephone from uh, Palm Beach, Dr. Aldo Morales. Uh, Dr. Morales is a medical director at Retreat in uh, Palm Beach, and uh, his specialty is addiction psychiatry. As you heard in the first segment, relatively speaking, a new field when dealing specifically with these co-occurring disorders that we're talking about on the program today. Dr. Morales, so now we know what we're talking about when we're talking about co-occurring disorders, and you've given us plenty of good examples about that. Let's talk about what, what people should be looking for in terms of, um, or you should be looking for, as a matter of fact, in terms of what you're treating here. Now, what are some of the symptoms of, of um, some, some of these disorders you mentioned? For, um, specifically, yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, great question. So I want to, yeah, I want to describe some of these to you. And when you hear them, you're going to say, you're going to say to yourself, this sounds like a person who is using. But and therein lies the problem we have in teasing out how much is a addiction related um, event, or how much is what we're seeing is a psychiatric uh, mood disorder event. For example, let's say a bipolar bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder is characterized by wide mood swings. These are patients that predominantly have more depression than mania. If you think of bipolar as, say, the North Pole and the South Pole, it's, it's two extremes. So they have extremes of lows, and that we call depression, and extremes of high, which we call mania. The highs can be either uh, market euphoria, where they're feeling totally on top of the world, or it could be irritability uh, instead of euphoria. And sometimes patients with bipolar disorder get into fights, uh, or especially with, uh, with law enforcement officers, uh, they get into fights or, or at home with family as part of the irritability, which is uh, one of the hallmarks or potential symptoms of a, of a manic episode. So these are patients who have very wide mood swings, they can be very depressed for periods of time, and then all of a sudden they have a manic episode where they are not sleeping, they feel on top of the world, they take on different projects, uh, and their personality changes. So when you listen to this, you probably say, well, I know someone that's like that, and they're like that because they've been using. They're using a, uh, a drug that produces depression or alcohol. They can present with depression. If they're using uh, methamphetamine or cocaine, they can present with mania. So um, we have to tease out which is the, the causative factor. So we see bipolar disorder. We see depressive disorders where it is the presence of a, a depressed condition without the manic uh, um, interludes. And, and depression is characterized by uh, seeing everything, uh, instead of seeing the glass, uh, half full, it's always seeing everything half empty. The person is characterized by seeing everything from a negative perspective, a loss of interest in activities that people previously enjoyed uh, doing, um, trouble with uh, sleep, 
trouble with appetite. Some people gain weight with depression. Some people lose weight with depression because they're not they're unable to eat. Um, and depression is pervasive. It prevents someone from uh, carrying their activities of daily living, uh, from performing at work, from being available to family, and it tends to be familial. So does bipolar disorder. They tend to run in families. Just like, just like high blood pressure runs in families, depression runs in families, so does bipolar disorder. Uh, panic episodes. Uh, there are many patients who end up using or becoming addicted as a means of, of treating their own panic uh, disorder. Uh, there are patients who present to the emergency room. I think I'm dying. My heart is racing mm-hmm. when I have a heart attack uh, or I'm going to die. Something's going to happen to me. And they get checked out in the emergency room. And they say, there's nothing wrong with you. We can't find anything. You must be having a panic attack. You know, it's a great opportunity for me to jump in here and ask a question that I've wanted to ask for a long time here now. Does breathing, yeah. does breathing into a bag uh, calm someone who's having a panic attack? And if so, why? Was breathing into a bag. You know, I, I remember hearing that. Well, you remember that, right? Right. Well, if you do that, you're breathing carbon dioxide, and I mean that may, in a way, if if you're if you're if you're altering your carbon dioxide to oxygen ratio, it may it may abort an anxiety episode because you're look. If you take anybody with an anxiety episode and you have them do such a task like that, whether it's breathing into a bag or whether it's, uh, here, write this down 10 times and then write right, it again, right, whatever. Right, right. As long as you're concentrating <laughs> on something else, you might divert the attention away from the panic attack. Exactly, uh, exactly. So anything, I don't know that carbon dioxide is actually something that works. I think it maybe it's just the act of concentrating on the breathing yeah. and, and holding a bag and that, but you, but you, but you I'm have guessing. you have heard of that home remedy, right? Yeah, I'm guessing of that. I'm yeah. guessing of that. But there are many patients who, before they come to me, they say, "I've been to the emergency room ten times already, and every time I go, they tell me, yeah, we can't do anything for you. There's nothing wrong with nothing you.' Nothing wrong with you. Uh, so let me let yeah. me ask you this: while we're talking about well, there's nothing wrong with you. You're the professional here. The the, the symptoms you've described to the layperson uh, are different in uh, depending upon the mood, uh, the disorder we're talking about. But to the layperson. Cr- and I don't mean to be crude, but crazy is crazy. I mean, it's just crazy behavior. Right. How, how do you, for instance, separate or or come to an understanding of, like, the difference between attention deficit uh, or a bipolar problem, which seems to be a little, probably more serious than, a, than an attention deficit? Well, that's a great question. Um, because there are many people who have, you know, to begin with, attention deficit is both overdiagnosed and underdiagnosed. It's a condition that sometimes people, uh, it's like a throwaway diagnosis. You get, you get the diagnosis very quickly. And at other times, there are people with the condition and they go under the radar. They are underdiagnosed. Um, especially, uh, well, the ones that go under the radar, there are two kinds of attention deficit. There's uh, three kinds, actually. There's a hyperactive, impulsive kind. There's an inattentive kind. And there's a combined type. Uh, the, the attention deficit... Um, hyperactive impulsive is the one that's always identified because this is a kid who is in school and very hyper, can't sit still, gets into trouble, uh, and that's that's in your face. You can't miss it. But there could be someone in school who is actually bright, but they're not interested in what's going on in the classroom. They're looking out the window, not paying attention. That's the inattentive type. And this this particular kind of uh, 
of attention deficit sometimes goes under the radar. It doesn't get picked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the hyper one gets makes gets confused with it with a manic episode of bipolar sometimes. The differentiation is that attention deficit is a disorder disorder of behavior, whereas bipolar disorder or mania is a disorder of mood. Mm. Furthermore, attention deficit a person who has attention deficit disorder is the same way every day. That's who they are. Whereas a bipolar patient has cycles. They could be manic, but only for a period of time, and then the mania goes away. They have episodes. I want to stop you there, and uh, we can pick up on this in the the next segment. Our guest, Dr. Uh, Aldo Morales, who is medical director at Retreat in Palm Beach, with us to discuss co-occurring disorders. Stay with us. We have more. This is Recovery Radio. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martorano is my name. We're here uh, each and every week, and we talk about the disease of addiction and the uh, the road to recovery, most importantly. It's all sponsored by Retreat, Premier Addiction Treatment Centers, uh, and we tell you this every week. It's sort of a mantra of mine. Um, when, when this disease strikes a family or an individual, they never see it coming. Never. And obviously, they're not prepared. Um, you often have to make extraordinary, diffi- extraordinary difficult decisions under tremendous pressure, and where do you turn? I'm going to give you the phone number for retreat, and I give it to you as an informational tool, and I say this every week as well. I hope you never have to use this number, but you can be confident that when you call it and you have questions, whatever they may be, um, you'll, get some, you'll get some good answers. So write it down, put it in a drawer, and again, I hope you never have to use it. But in a tough situation, it could be a lifesaver. 855-859-8808. Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. 855-859-8808. From their Palm Beach facility, medical director, Dr. Aldo Morales is our guest here. We're talking about his specialty, which is addiction psychiatry in the treatment of co-occurring psychiatric disorders. Uh, Dr. Morales... Before we uh, get into some of the causes of this, which you've uh, which you've uh, alluded to earlier, I have a question. I want to back up a little bit with regard to the behaviors you've described, which are psychiatric in nature. These disorders causing people to behave in a certain way, um, certain negative way, whether they're manic or depressed or anything. What what's going on with their judgment in in the context of the substance abuse? Okay, I'm depressed, or yeah, I have these manic episodes. Um, what are they thinking about when they would take a situation like that and then add drugs to it? What's going on in, in their thought process or their judgment? That's a great question. Well, there's a couple, couple of things come to mind. Number one, whenever we, we as a species, we, humans encounter problems in their lives, the, the instinct and the way that we've, we've learned to um, solve problems is to literally just get rid of a problem. Uh, we want a problem to go away as quickly and, and as uh, effortlessly as possible. And drugs can do that because by inducing an artificial state of mind, whether an individual is suffering from depression or worrying too much with anxiety or having auditory hallucinations and hearing voices or whatever, as soon as they get under the influence of a mind-altering substance, that symptom or that problem they were experiencing disappears. So they can discover a way of getting rid of a problem. And many people will discover that, and that's called self-medication. But here's what happens with, with, the, uh, with addiction. Here's what, what we teach medical students today. 
let's say there are three factors that come into play to determine whether a person develops a substance abuse problem. There's a genetic factor, for example, there's a genetic vulnerability to, to, uh, um, to addiction. There's an environmental uh, factor. Uh, what part of the world are you living in? Uh, what, under what conditions are you living? You know, uh, are, are your conditions uh, leading you to, uh, are you living in the ghetto where drugs are all around you? Or are you living in, in, a, situ in a situation where you're comfortable? And, and so the environment plays a role. The genetic uh, vulnerability plays a role. And the third factor is the individual trait. There are some people who are better risk takers than others. There are some people who, who would jump at the chance of taking a risk and others who are risk averse. They say, no, no, I'm going to play it safe. Mm -hmm. So once, once a person decides to try a drug, for example, now, for whatever reason, either for self-medication purposes, for get rid of an internal problem, internal meaning a negative state that's existing in their head, something they want to get rid of, like anxiety or something, or whether it's just to get high. Once they introduce the drugs, they establish, they begin to establish circuits in their brain, and with repeated administration, if you do it enough times, these circuits become very strong, and eventually they become hardwired. They just don't hardwired. To my accent, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> w i r e d, hardwired. Yes. And it's very difficult to get rid of of such a circuit. And when and when that occurs, when the circuit becomes very strong, it also prevents the our judgment to come into play. For example, we have a capability in our brain that if you develop a notion, for example, as I, let's say I might develop a notion, hey, maybe I should rob a bank. I, I, I need some money. Maybe I could rob that bank there and I could get the money that I need. But then we have the capacity to override that and say, wait a minute, that doesn't seem like a good idea. I might get in trouble for that. Well, that capacity to override is lost in addiction. So an individual that has an addictive illness and, and they are using, they, have, they don't have the capacity to, to decide, hey, this is not good, I better stop this. And that's what makes the, the addiction perpetual. That's what keeps patients repeating the same uh, situation. Because anybody who's outside of the addiction looking in would say, hey, why don't you just stop that? Look, you lost your job, you lost this, you had all these negative consequences, why don't you just stop? You can't stop because the, 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 the judgment capability is lost. The impulses that come from the higher portions of, of the brain to sort of quell whatever unrest is, is, is lurking underneath, that capability is lost in addiction. The um, it's the stop sign that goes away. <laughs> it's the, the stop sign. It's the stop, the sign. stop sign disappears. It goes yeah. away. Yeah, um, and it's yeah. and it's a principle. It's the, it's the principal confusion around the stigma that still attaches itself to the disease that um, has people going. Look, they know it's bad for them. They just don't want to stop. And we're learning more. No, we're, no, no, that's, I know that's we're not le the case. learning more and well, more about there, they can't. Well, there there are times when people do not want to stop. There are times when, when, when they haven't reached the point where they, where they say, look, I've got to do something about this, but I'm powerless. I just can't. Uh, there's a time when, when they start fooling around with this kind of stuff that they're just going out to get high. But eventually, they'll reach a point where they say, you know, I don't want to do this anymore, but I don't know how to stop. It's almost like when you said uh, the stop sign, it's, it's almost as if you lose your eyesight 
and you cannot see the stop sign. Right. You can't blame a, you can't blame a blind person for not stopping. Hey, you didn't see the stop sign. What do you want from me? I'm blind. <laughs> exactly. The addicted so, the addicted patient is blind to that. As a psychiatrist, is it is it uh, part of what you're you're trying to do uh, is to uh, reorient people uh, towards towards this this notion that. There's a relationship between their behavior and their substance abuse, and they have the power. In other words, they have the power to stop this. Because you said some people don't want to stop, but the people who do reach successful sobriety get to a point where they something changes, right? Where, where, they, where they can't do, where they they really don't want to do it anymore. Is is your is your job as a psychiatrist to get them to that point faster? Yes, the voice of reason. The voice of reason is uh, is powerful. And as long as you maintain that and it's gradual. Uh, also, what's also important is the time to heal. Uh, for example, if you cut yourself on your hand or whatever, it'll, it'll heal in a couple of weeks. The brain has the capacity to heal from the addiction stuff that we've been talking about, but the brain is very slow in healing, extremely slow. Look how slow the brain is to develop. When a child is born, it takes forever to, uh, to mature, uh, compared to, say, a dog or a cat, right? They, a cat sure. matures very quickly yeah. compared to a human. Yeah, a broken, a broken uh, bone, so, a broken bone will, will will mend faster than a broken mind, right? Yeah. So it takes the brain a long time to heal. So mm. during that healing time, what you need to do is is maintain abstinence. So if you can, if you can help an individual maintain abstinence. Just that alone begins a healing process, and then you have to couple that with with uh, some teaching techniques and teach people new skills. Um, and in case of co-occurring disorders, we might want to treat them uh, psychologically with psychotherapy and or with medication. Well, we're going to talk about that coming uh, straight ahead. I want to, among the things you mentioned with regard to causes of co-occurring diseases. Or disorders uh, you mentioned g genetics uh, I'm, I'm curious about the environmental uh, aspect of this prior to the current opioid epidemic uh, substance abuse of opioids was thought to be the problem of a specific socioeconomic even racial group um, when it exploded and now encompasses everybody in this country from every strata of society uh, what a what are we learning about the environmental? Something must have changed environmentally, don't you think, that contributed to that? I'm not sure about environmentally. Uh, what changed was the, the, the promotion of opioid as being uh, relatively innocuous and relatively non-addictive. And that was a false promotion of that, and coupled with the, with the abundant availability of the stuff. Uh, well, so that, that's what fuel. Yeah. Well, that's a change in the environment. <laughs> it, you yeah. know, if you have if you have large, powerful, and uh, um, wealthy entities uh, changing the the culture's attitude about these drugs, lying in some cases about these drugs, then the the environment has changed. Correct. What happens when, and we're going to get into this in the final segment, I don't want to get too deeply into the treatment aspects of this, but what happens when you arrive at a, a comfortable diagnosis that what this person is suffering from psychiatrically is a genetic disorder? I mean, is there anything you can do about I mean, if it's genetics, then it's genetics. Uh, 
well, you can still treat it. Uh, diabetes is, is, is genetically, uh, is, is a genetic disorder, meaning that people have a higher propensity if, 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 there's, if it runs in the family. Uh, so, but just because the disease is there, I mean, we can always we can always treat, we can always manage it. We can't we can't cure addiction, but we can manage it. And by managing it, I mean I mean help the patient uh, remain in sobriety. Um, and if there's a co-occurring disorder, it behooves us to treat the co-occurring disorder because if we don't, the relapse risk is going to be higher. We're going to talk about treatment straight ahead with Dr. Aldo Morales on Recovery Radio. Stay with us. We have more. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Uh, we, we, uh, I've had a terrific time uh, with our guest, Dr. Aldo Morales, who is medical director at Retreat in Palm Beach. He specializes in addiction psychiatry, helping us understand what co-occurring disorders are, what, uh, why they matter, and how they're going to find out now about treating them. Uh, it's been, um, as I said, a deep dive here on an important issue. So, Take us there, Dr. Morales. Uh, you've described what we're talking about and why it's important. How do you treat this stuff? Are you? Is it a talking okay, how, cure? Is it? What is it? Right. So, how much time do we have, Steve? We got a few hours. <laughs> we got about <laughs> two weeks, right? All right. So, look. There, there's three ways that we manage dual diagnosis or co-occurring diseases. We can manage the two conditions sequentially, one first and the other one later. Uh, we can manage it in parallel. I'll talk about that in a minute. Or integrated, manage both simultaneously. Sequential treatment is a way that it happens most of the time. Sequential treatment, for example, a patient is admitted to a psychiatric hospital because they are manic or psychotic or suicidal, and they get stabilized there just for the acute aspect of it. They stabilize the suicidality or stabilize the psychosis or stabilize the main, uh, the, um, what, whatever uh, acute psychiatric manifestation, and they don't address the, the substance problem. Then they say, well, when you finish here, now we're going to refer you to go get your substance abuse treatment elsewhere. And that's sequential treatment. And parallel treatment occurs, and that occurs all the time too. Parallel treatment is uh, a patient is seeing a counselor or a therapist or a psychiatrist uh, to discuss and manage their... their, um, their um, psychological issues or they might even be getting some medication and they're going elsewhere to another program or to AA for example or NA to deal with the substance or alcohol problem. Um, the trouble with that one is is that uh, sometimes there's communication gaps uh, between who, who's ever providing the, the substance uh, treatment and who's ever providing the psychological treatment. Uh, the best approach, the one that gives us best results uh, is the integrated model where we address both situations simultaneously. We address the both co-occurring disorders at the same time, uh, the substance uh, or alcohol problem, uh, as well as the psychiatric presentation. Um, we seem to get better results. When I say we, I mean in the industry. Yes. Uh, so, um, so that gives us an advantage. For example, we're like uh, I like retreat because we, are, we we since we're all under one roof here, we're able to address it simultaneously. How do you balance um, in the, in the uh, medically uh, medicine uh, assisted treatment uh, component here? How do you balance the, for instance, uh, 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 mood drugs, uh, benzodiazepine, uh, people who need stuff like that? Um, and their their uh, addictive tendencies that that must be a difficult. Well, 
one one of the rules that I always teach medical students is this. I say I always tell, uh, I always tell them never give an addictive substance to a patient who has an addiction disease. That would be like saying to a patient, "Well, I see you've had trouble with alcohol. Why don't you try cocaine instead?" Mm-hmm. That doesn't fly. You can't do that. By the same token, benzodiazepines are not used in the in the in the uh, addiction treatment community. Actually, we have Steve. We have a benzodiazepine epidemic. It is under the radar now because it is it is eclipsed by the opioid epidemic. But once the opioid epidemic gets a little more under control, you're going to see and you're going to hear in the news about the benzodiazepine epidemic that we have. Um, so benzodiazepines are very effective drugs for a short run, for a short period, uh, but never even in a, not even for a short period in a patient with uh, addiction disease. However, there are many doctors who are practicing who have not been trained in this issue, and they're very quick to uh, issue a benzodiazepine prescription to a patient with anxiety or with, with depression or something uh, because they have not been taught of the, um, the, the downside to that. Uh, they have not been trained in the addictions. So uh, hopefully in the future, Steve, our, our doctors are going to be more sensitive to that. Uh, you know, maybe I got off on a tangent no. here. What, can you take, take me yeah, back no, to your no, question? I, I, well, here's my, here, let's, 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 you know, get real close to it. Some, I, I, I come to treatment, at retreat or someplace else. Um, we, you know, we, de- we detox because none of this is possible. No success is possible if, if substances are still present. And then... And then how often would I meet someone like you or someone on the psychiatric uh, staff of a treatment facility, and what would go on there? Would it be the standard come in and lay on the couch, or how does it manifest itself? Well, it depends on the patient. I don't know that. I don't do psychoanalysis, Mm -hmm. but it is a particular modality. Uh, It is a valid modality. It just takes a long, long time. But there are many treatment modalities that we use. We will use well. We will use medications. There are many medications that are FDA approved for conditions such as depression, such as bipolar disorder, such as psychotic disorders. Medications for attention deficit. All these disorders have FDA approved medications, and the ones that we would use are those that don't have an addictive potential. At the same time, simultaneously, we will use various. Uh, psychotherapeutic um, techniques such as cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT or DBT, dialectic behavioral therapy, contingency management. There are all different kinds of um, uh, schools of, 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 uh, of therapy for, um, for uh, psychotherapy. There's motivational enhancement therapy is a great model. For example, motivational enhancement therapy <clears throat> the therapist says to the to the patient, "What are, what are the chances that you're going to be, be able to stay sober this weekend?" And the patient says, "Oh man, it's about fifty fifty." So then you say, "Well, what can we do to make it eighty twenty? Right? You see, and you and you gradually begin to work towards a sobriety mm-hmm, mode, mm-hmm. Uh, sobriety mode. Yo, so you sound like so, of, all, of all these schools that you belong to the school of whatever works, whatever whatever is achieve, achieving results is the best every, technique. Yeah, Steve, every patient is different, where some patient, one patient might respond to this modality, someone else might respond to another one. You use whatever is needed to get the job done. Dr. Aldo Morales, it's been great. I, I hope we can have you back again uh, many more times because, as, as you said, we need a lot more time to discuss this. It's been terrific. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. 
Uh, and uh, thank you guys for your attention and uh, keep looking for us here on Recovery Radio. We're everywhere. Better podcasts are streamed. Thanks. See you later. Bye-bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.